It's witchcraft. <laughs> hey, it's 4:20 a.m. Hi and welcome to episode 46 of The Stoned Witches Hour. If you're looking for spectral thrills, paranormal chills, or supernatural boogeyman, our super high witches have got it all. From the west coast of California to the eastern shores of Massachusetts, we cover all the ghost stories, urban legends, and true crime to be found. And we do all that while smoking the sweetest sticky icky. Representing the west coast and the spookiest ghosts, I'm Layla. I'm Shell, and I just want to say that I think they're actually really here for us and because we're silly and weird. I don't think they're here for the ghost stories. I'm just <laughs> oh, you think it's it's our sparkling personality, Shell, that kind of bring the listeners in? I'm here for our sparkling personalities. <laughs> That's a good point. I, I think I'm here for all of it. I like the entire experience. Actually, I'm here for the weed. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and how high are you today, Shell? What day is it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, today is Wednesday, the first Wednesday in December. When did it become Wednesday in December? Like, wasn't it August like a day ago? I'm pretty sure. I'm fairly certain we just started this podcast. Actually, we're getting to the point where it's about a year now where we just started talking about this podcast. Oh, my God. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? No, I can't. I loved sharing the Spotify wrapped podcast version with you. That was a lot of fun to see where everyone was from that listens, particularly just on Spotify. That was really cool. That was very cool. And I would like to say that I did not realize we were so popular in Poland. So tonight, <laughs> our shout out is going out to the you folks in Poland. And, 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 and we love you. And it's probably cold there, but we still love you. Stay warm. Hey, Poland, this bowl is for you. So this evening, actually, we're going to do a couple different things. I have a bunch of questions from our listeners, Shell, for our Ask Me Anything segment. Oh, my God. I love questions. And then I'm going to be taking us to the wonderful state of Hawaii. Ooh. We're going to talk about the kasha of the Kaimuki house. Now, I'm going to kind of go into a more seasonal direction myself. Oh, I like it. This is a beautiful time of year to get seasonal. I love the whole winter solstice vibe. So what's your story about? I'm actually going to talk about the tradition of ghost stories at Christmas. That's our thing. I love that. Yeah. Folks in America might not be as familiar with how traditional it is to talk about ghost stories um, in the paranormal and the supernatural at Christmas time. I wasn't aware that it was like traditional to talk about ghost stories. It is. Really? It, yeah. So I'm, I'm going to kind of talk about the history of that. Actually, no, wait, you're right. The, the, the Christmas, the story of Christmas Carol is literally about ghosts, right? Right. So we're going to talk about the the history of ghost stories at Christmas time. And we'll touch a little bit on Krampus, our friend Krampus, our friend Krampus. Oh, what a wonderful, cool urban legend. I love that. So I'm going to talk about ghost stories in general and not necessarily one ghost story in particular, but it'll be a seasonal story. So that's that's what you're getting from the East Coast, folks. That's what you're getting. Wow. This is an excellent episode. And I am smoking some fabulous weed this evening. I got a little tired of my homegrown. So I'm smoking something called grunts right now. Ooh, it's very purpley. I've been very into the purple strains lately. 
I guess it's a cross of gelato, which I've been totally obsessed with since this past summer, with Skittles. And they say it has a, a decent level of THC. I'm going to say kind of in the mid-20s. But the taste is phenomenal, Shell. You would love it. It smells fruity. It tastes fruity. And it's just an absolutely delicious smoke. So middle of the road THC gets me nice and toasty. And I'm just happy to be here and keep smoking this fabulous cultivar. How about you? What are you smoking today, Shell? Now, this is a weird one. And I'll tell you why I bought this. We all why? know I'm out for the best bang for the buck with the highest Always. THC here. So... This is called Citral Glue. Okay, a citrus, adore a citrus, and a glue. Who doesn't love Gorilla Glue? So I'm but guessing it's a hybrid of those. Remember how I was talking about a couple episodes ago, how they're starting to sell, like, they call them popcorn buds because they're not pretty and big? I just saw that out of a shop in Riverside, California. They sold me an absolutely gorgeous half ounce did you get it cheaper because it was smaller buds? It was $60. It yeah. was an absolutely gorgeous half ounce, and it was just all smaller buds. I wouldn't say it was just crumbled bud. It was just smaller buds. Like popcorn and buds. Absolutely beautiful, super high THC concentration, and it was $60 for the half. Because basically, it's not these, like 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 I was saying in that our previous episode, for some reason... People want their whole eighth in one bud. I don't give a shit. No shit's given. Once an area has been legal for a certain period of time, you're going to start to see the prices drop drastically. And the reason for that is because cannabis is a weed. Weeds are easy to grow. And if you yep. start applying excellent lights and perfect growing conditions, amazing nutrients, you are going to get pounds and pounds of the crystally, gooey, phenomenal high THC content, cannabis everywhere. It's going to be overflowing bags and bags and bags of it. Right. They won't be able to give this shit away. Ounce prices, or I'm sorry, pound prices plummet to the double digits in some cases. They can afford to put just the choicest buds. That's how they have to make their money because if there's so much of it, they have to put like just the best ones together and try to sell that at a premium price. Right. And the rest, they're basically just going to try and give away at basement bargain prices. Well, right now I'm taking the basement bargain prices. I didn't even look at the name of it. I was just like, oh, that's only going to be 30 and eighth. I'll take it. I love it. And I want the market to go that way. But my fear, and this is why I always push for any area that goes to legalization, make sure, get involved and make sure that home grows are protected. Make sure that right. the people are allowed to grow. Because once a market gets to this point, they're going to do everything they can to lock down the supply. They need right. to limit the supply to keep the prices high. Right. And if they make it like the diamond trade, where only they are allowed to grow and only they are allowed to sell, they're basically going to keep the supply restricted so that they can keep the prices astronomical. And we can't allow that to happen. That's what I'm concerned that's going to happen, unfortunately, because they're going to try to monopolize on it so that they can make the most bang for their buck. You know, kind of like some of these states, I'm not going to call out states, but there's a, a state here in New England where casinos are illegal, except for three that are state run. So that 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 state can kind of rake it all in and not share the wealth. Similar concept, you know, if, if they control the production, the smoker, the end user is screwed. 
Exactly. And and if they say that it's illegal for you to grow your own, you have no other access than the way that they provide it to you. Right. And so they, they can absolutely monopolize it. So protect home grows at all costs. So anyway, rant over. I'm happily stoned. I'm going to pack another bowl here in my nice little bowl. I've been totally into this bowl lately, the one that I broke. <laughs> it's my broken bowl and I love it. It's got the perfect size little bowl and it just hits so nicely. Cheap ass glass, but I absolutely love it. Well, you only broke the nub off, right? Yeah, I just broke the cute little bee off the end of it. Just a little decorative piece. It's still functional. Oh, yeah. The pipe itself, not broken. Just the decorative bee broke off the end. Sacrificed itself to keep the bowl safe. Damn it. Damn it. (laughs) We asked a little while ago for some Ask Me Anything questions, and our listeners responded. So I have a bunch of them for you here, Shell. I kind of organized them a little bit. We have a few witch ones, we have a few ghosty ones, and we have a few cannabis ones. What would you like to start with? So I would like to, honestly, since we've been talking about weed, why don't we start with the weed questions? All right. Sounds good. Okay. So first weed question I have is from Prohibition State Anon. They said, how much weed do you smoke and what is your favorite strain? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, see, you know, I have a funny about that. I would say I used to smoke about a half an ounce a week. And then I the last two or so years, not as much, um, probably maybe a half every two weeks. But (laughs) so Layla comes to Salem for the weekend. (laughs) Uh Oh, (laughs) I think no. Didn't we go through like a half in that weekend? I I think we went through a little more than that. So, you know, sometimes it's situational. Is it just living your life, hanging out at home? Or are Layla and Shell together, like, race smoking? I would say on the regular, probably at this point, a half every two weeks. For myself, to answer that part of the question, I would have to say I smoke a little bit closer to an ounce a week. And that's only because I grow, I think. Probably. I've noticed that when I started growing way back in the day, originally there were a lot of times I didn't smoke. I worked eight hours a day in an office, so I didn't smoke at all during that time. Maybe a puff or two in the parking lot at lunch. Um, But then when I started transitioning to working from home and growing even more, my smoking habits started going up. And then when the pandemic hit, That was around the same time when my fibroid pain really also started acting up and getting through the roof unbearable. And I was trying everything under the sun to keep that in check. So, and that's when I discovered that dabs really helped with that pain and higher level THC in combination with CBD helped with that pain. That's also when my husband started working from home as well. So we would sit in the same office and it became very, very easy for us both to listen to music, working on a computer. Smoke all day pass a bong back and forth and smoke all day. And so now it's a little bit closer to an ounce a week. I do talk a lot about taking a THC break and I probably should. I don't have any. You've done that before though. You, you've taken a break before. We've taken a break ritually. Do you remember before that big Beltane ritual we did? We gave it up for about a month. Yeah. Yeah. Think of it as the Christian version of our Lent. Yeah, exactly. We we were so focused on on wanting to do a good ritual for our community that we gave up cannabis, not because we felt like it hindered us in any way, but as a ritual sacrifice of something that we loved, 
we were we sacrificed that ritually to give that up you know the idea to put all of our energy towards this thing and to sacrifice something that we really cared for i like your analogy to lent we always joke about how i always go for the high thc and that that's my thing and and i will never deny that ever but moving and being in a different climate because believe it or not upstate new york and living on the ocean coast in salem different climate i believe it I think some of the reason I like the higher THC better here is um, when you have those chronic back issues that I have, sometimes like I can tell when a storm's coming in my back kind of thing. And there's a lot more moisture in the air here constantly than I'm used to. Like, not that upstate New York was dry per se, but it wasn't (laughs) like there was no ocean air there either. So I think sometimes... The higher THC makes, you know, it's not just about fun and games. It's sometimes about physically getting out of bed. <laughs> yes. And it, it really does Literally help. Physically getting out of bed. Yeah. And, and it, it helps. So why not take it if it helps? So the second half of that question is what is your favorite strain? What's your favorite cultivar shell? Oh my God. Like, how can you ask these questions? <laughs> it depends on what day. We've always been fans of like white wedding type stuff sour diesel stuff, super lemon haze. I don't know if right now today, my friend, I can answer your question because there's a lot of good strains out there, but there are some I like sticking with. Like again, the white wedding, gorilla glue, any silver haze type thing, an oldie but a goodie that I haven't seen in a while. And I wish I could would be some pineapple express. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of good ones. I don't know if I can say one. I, I think I'm with you on that. It used to be back in the day, nothing had a name. It was either Rickweed or it was Kind Bud. Right. right. We either had Dirt or Kind. That was it. It had no other name. Or Hydro. Remember or that? Hydro. Yeah. Eventually, Hydro became a synonymous with Kind, had nothing to do with growing in water. I just, I don't think I can say one particular no, and, and back when we first started smoking, some of the first names that I would hear were Super Lemon Haze or Diesel Strains. And those were the notes that you would taste. The diesels all had like a gasoline kind of taste. Remember White Widow? I do. I love White Widow. I've seen that Widow. bad boy in a while. I just had some not too long ago. Fabulous. Really? Oh, yeah. Good stuff. Very white, very crystally. But the, the lemons had a, a citrusy taste to it. So anything with a citrus was a lemon haze. And Anything that had a gas taste was a diesel. So those were my favorites at the time, possibly because they did have a distinctive taste. And you know, I love something that tastes good. I would guess, how how about this? This might be a more fair answer and a less vague answer. If I had to pick my favorite type, it would be the citrusy flavors. My favorite type would be the lemons, the pineapples, those citrusy You know what I mean? Yes, I also love those. I definitely grab for the sweets and dreams section. I go for a gelato in particular any day. If it has the word gelato in it, I'm going to smoke it. Don't get me wrong. I will smoke anything that you put in my pipe, but I I, I am a fan of the citrus strains. So so if you want to ask a favorite, then that's the best answer I can give you right now, friend. Perfect. I think that's it. I think we kind of covered that one. So do you want to stick in the same category or would you like to change category, Shell? Surprise me. Oh, okay. Let's go random. Pick a number one through seven. Five. One, two, three, four, five. From I'm a ghost. 
the question is, okay, what is it with these multiple part questions, people? This was ask me anything, not ask me everything. Because we're so we're so weird that they just have so many questions that one is just not, <laughs> they just can't. I guess so. But I'm a ghost sent in and asked, what would you say was the scariest paranormal sighting you ever had? And what would you say was the most convincing experience you ever had or the one that made you believe in ghosts? Um, the one that made me believe in ghosts and the most convincing was when I was 10 years old and my grandfather was at the end of my bed about six months after he died. Most convincing made me believe that. Wow, was that's intense. Scariest, honestly. <laughs> that fucked up story when we spent the night at Layla's dad's house and like that thing, like that thing was not a good, happy spirit. And I was scared no. and I don't yeah. want to go to Layla's dad's house again overnight. <laughs> Especially because we were so oblivious to the angry spirit that was there until the next day. I think that was the scariest part for me. Well, and I think also, I mean, you figure that was, oh, good Lord, 20, 25 years ago. We were a lot younger. We were a lot more inexperienced. We didn't know as much about, you know, magic and, and, and witchcraft and the paranormal exactly. and all that. We were, we were way more naive, which I think made it way more scarier. I agree. We had less tools to handle with something. Yeah, we were, we were fucking around with shit that like we weren't prepared to deal with at that stage in our lives. And that made it scary. Absolutely. I would have to say that the the thing that made me a believer, I grew up with a lot of ghost stories in my family. And so you grew up in that house. How could that not make you a believer? I would have to say it's a very similar experience of seeing my great grandmother at the end of my bed and talking to her and then finding out she'd been dead for years. Right. I think that was probably the one as a child. It's almost like we were both at an age where believing in that wasn't beaten out of us by society and we were more susceptible you know you know how kids are more susceptible to ghosts kind of theory and i i think that we were both visited by relatives that knew we would still see them exactly i agree i agree i have no explanation for it to this day so that's the one that caught me so pick your next category shall oh let's do a witchy okay so the witchy is from Belinda X420. They say, how did you become a witch and what age were you? What does being a witch mean to you? Well, okay. That's kind of a weird question to answer. Like what age did I have tendencies or what age did I start officially reading books and studying and, and, and whatnot? Because those are two different answers. Ooh. If we want to go with the formal... When did I start studying witchcraft and Wicca and paganism and this, that, and when the other? did you declare you were a witch? Um, 18. Okay. But, you know, I, I, in retrospect, showed all the signs all along from childhood. You were a witch from a young age. I mean, I remember sitting in my backyard mixing sticks and leaves and acorns. I used to brew potions in my backyard as well. You know, and, and, and like, shooting stars making wishes on shooting stars like just stuff that i didn't know and by right. the time i was 18 i started to realize what that was all along yes same thing i used to brew potions in my backyard and do rituals and incantations and not really know what it was i read the mists of avalon 
and I think I was nine or 10, I don't know, I was very young. It struck a huge chord in me, this whole idea that there could be an island of women that would learn magic and ritual. And I started to kind of try and emulate that just by what came to my imagination or what I think now was what was coming to me from ancient knowledge or from inner knowledge. I just kind of naturally, I think we all have this and we suppress it over time, but I kind of knew these things. And, and my grandmother was also at that time teaching me tarot and showing me uh, how to use a Ouija board and, and that kind of thing under the guise of spiritualism. So pretty young, I think, but I didn't call myself a witch until right. I was until I was probably a freshman in high school and I found a book that said that's what I was. Part of it was I didn't know what it was called until really around meeting you. Yeah, it, it was so early back then. There were not all these books. There were few books and they were hard to find. And the internet and, and chat rooms were in their infancy at that time. I just knew I was different and weird and one of the few people I knew that kind of really had no interest in church and, you know, I'd rather go walk in the woods and be at the rivers and the creeks and the streams than in some weird building drinking some crazy old wine that I was too young for and away for that tasted like shit. Exactly. But I didn't, I didn't know what that meant. Just it right, meant that I right. was different. So I guess forever in 18, there's your answers. Huh, I love that answer. All right. So let's circle back and we'll do another cannabis question. So let's see here. Anonymous. This person chose to be anonymous. They wrote in and asked again, a multi-part question. They said, what kind of marijuana do you use for pain relief? And what kind of relief do you feel physical or mental? Have there been any downsides to using so much weed for pain? Um, okay. Any. <laughs> to start your first question, one thing I cannot medically resolve with marijuana is headaches. If I have a headache, weed makes it worse. If I have a headache, I just need to stop smoking. Otherwise, there really isn't a downside. I've never had it not work. I have um, ruptured and herniated lower disc issues that I've had for, I don't know, 29 years now. And it's never not worked. Um, sometimes you need to smoke a little bit more or a little bit less, depending on how much you've smoked leading up to that or how bad it hurts. But I've never had it ineffective per se. A bellyache, let me tell you, you eat too much for Thanksgiving and you feel like puking or shitting, smoke a bowl, it'll help. Headache is a no-go with weed. It's the one thing, like if I got a headache, I need to stop smoking, period. I'm the same way. Pretty much weed works for everything for me. And honestly, people will say, hey, use this cultivar for this problem or this cultivar for that problem. And there is something to that. There is a lot to do with the terpenes and, and everything with that. Certainly talk to your bud tender. I hope you have one that's really knowledgeable. But honestly, for me, just, just give me some weed, particularly one with a high THC concentration if I'm using it for pain or for nausea. If I'm feeling nauseated, or if I've eaten too much, like Shell said, I love it. It works for that. Have you ever seen that movie, Shell, My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Yeah. There's the one dad who's like put, puts Windex on everything. It's like his cure-all. You know, oh, you've got a bruise, put Windex on it. Weed oh, is our Windex. Weed is my Windex. I, it, works for, it does work for me for headaches, not all of them. There are some types of headaches, particularly if I have a light sensitive type headache, I might want to stay away from the cannabis. 
And um, and again, that's that's probably why I stick to the higher THCs. You know, again, I've had this this chronic back issue the better part of 30 years. And back when I started smoking, there was no such thing as CBD. You know, there was weed and not weed, brick weed, you know, dirt weed. Like like (laughs) I said, I don't even look at CBD nowadays. I'm looking at THC, high high THC, and my back is functional. That's, that's, That's what I know. And I just go with what I know. General pain, nausea, I reach for pretty much anything. If I'm having severe fibroid pain, I will absolutely reach for a high THC concentrate and also usually a CBD that I can dab as well. And I'll do both of them. What was the second part of that question? I'm still high. Have there been any downsides to using so much weed for pain? Yes, the cost. Oh my God, the cost. When is there going to come a day where, like I pay a lot of money in health insurance, okay? Like I I pay a good old, a lot of money for each of my paychecks. Like why? It's a prescription. I have a prescription for it. It's been recommended by my doctor. Why can't I claim it on my insurance? I mean, even if it only paid for like half, like, dude, help a girl out. And I'll go to the doctor. And that's why I hate going to the doctor nowadays for my back. Like, unless they can give me a back replacement. Because I'll be like, oh, you know, it hurts, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, well, we can prescribe this opioid and that opioid and make you a fucking pill addict. And I'm like, no, I just want my weed. I'm good. And my insurance will make me an opioid addict, but my insurance won't even give me a break on my bud. So weird. That is the strangest thing. How fucked up is that? Like, I feel like that's just backwards. I agree. They'll give me the craziest pills with the longest list of side effects, but they won't pay for my weed that has been proven to help time and time again and doesn't hurt anything except for my bank account. I don't want Percocets. I want Super Lemon Haze. Jesus. Thank you. Preach it, Shell. (laughs) I mean, come on. So yeah, there you go, Anonymous. That is the downside. All right, so... Ghosty question. Let's see here. John H. says, I've never seen a ghost, but I believe in the afterlife and have even done some amateur ghost hunting. Very cool. Why do you think some people see ghosts everywhere and some people, okay, me, never see them even though I really want to? Wow. Um, Wrong place, wrong time, maybe? I'm not the only sure. Thing I, and, and I'm not thinking of the right words because I'm high, but all I can think of is overeager. What am I trying to say, Layla? Like, you know how if you're too overeager, it's not going to happen? It really depends on the energy that you put into it and the people that you're there with. If you go into it and you have the right attitude, sometimes it needs a reverential attitude. Sometimes it needs more of a respectful attitude. Maybe you're going into it expecting too much. And so therefore you're not open and aware to the subtle things that are going on around you. That's what I'm thinking. You're expecting some big, loud kaboom, and you're missing all the subtle things that are happening. So you had the opportunity, but you were looking too big. Exactly. Exactly. You're looking at the forest, and so you're missing all the trees. Right, right. (laughs) But I will say this. like Anytime Layla and I have done such crazy things, we tend to try to put the ritualistic aspect to it, you know, cast the circle and things of that nature invite them, ask them to come tell, you know, treat it like you're trying to have a conversation with a a viable person that's standing in front of you. I don't want to sound weird, but that's kind of the respect you have to give. I don't know where you are, John. 
come to us. We will do a ritual and, and we'll see what we can do for you to bring some ghosties to you. Email us again, John, at thestonedwitcheshour at gmail.com. Give us a little more information on your situation and maybe we can give you some pointers. And I'm not going to say that this applies to you, John, but I am going to say that the paranormal, seeing ghosts is kind of, it's kind of like baseball. <laughs> I, I use this analogy for tarot too, but it's kind of like baseball. Everyone can play baseball. Some of us can go out there and we're hitting home runs and stealing bases and throwing the ball perfectly right from day one with zero practice or training. And some of us cannot throw a ball to save our lives, trip over our own feet and can't remember the rules. Right. And it depends on where you are on that spectrum. Everyone can play baseball, but you might be on the, I really trip over my feet when trying to see ghosts end of the spectrum. And so you just maybe need some more training or maybe you need some pointers or or maybe you need to to find your tools and find your training before you get up to the point where you're doing a good job and be able to to throw, you know, able to hit home runs to continue with the dumb baseball analogy. So give us a little more information and maybe we can help you out. I'm interested. John, definitely email us back because I'm, I'm A, interested and B, totally willing to help. Oh, damn, man. And she has done ghost hunting before. She's led groups. I've done a little bit. So let us know and let Shell the expert give you some tips, man. Take the free advice. All right. Next question. I'm All excited. right. Next question. Witchy question. Talicia, Talicia, uh, Talicia says, have you ever cursed anyone? Only people that deserved it. And you only know when I was willing to take the consequences. You know what? I'm just going to be blunt and honest here. Yeah, I have. And you know what? Sometimes, okay, rule of three, you know, do unto others as you would have done unto you. What you put out there comes back to you. That's I a thing. That's I a understand thing. it. It's a thing. Karma. I get it. I'm there. But let me tell you what, people. Sometimes the karma and the consequences are worth the action. Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Right. And, and, and you know, I'm not going to get into details, but I will give you a snippet so you don't think I'm just total batshit. This involved my children. And I'm telling you right now, if you, you, you want to involve my kids, and yes, I, I, I will do what I have to do. And absolutely. Be damned. Don't piss off a mama. And that's up to you, man. If you feel that what you want to do is worth the consequences, Rock on with your bad self. And 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 yes, there's been times where I felt that those consequences were worth it. Not going to lie. And there will be consequences. It's, it's very oh, yeah. similar. Oh, absolutely. It's very similar to if you're doing a spell or a curse against someone who is attacking your child. It's just the same as if you walked up to that person and you punch them in the face and tackled right. them. There will be consequences for those actions. They might be a slap on the wrist, but there will be some type of consequences for those actions. Whether those consequences are worth it to you or not is the question. Right. And and when it comes to my kids, you know, consequences right. be damned. And I was put in a situation and I did what I had to and I paid my consequences with a smile. Exactly. So, yeah, I guess, Talicia, it, yes, I have. And only with great thought and great care. And with what I thought at the time was perfect reasoning. Was a damn good reason. Has it not always been a damn good reason? Yes. <laughs> and sometimes should I have thought a little more? Yeah. Probably. Probably. Yeah. So you definitely should take care. You should take thought. Anytime you're going to punch someone in the nose, 
you should think about it first. Right. Probably. <laughs> but, you know, honestly, that kind of goes with anything, you know, good or bad, light or dark, you know, whatever. You're getting those same quote unquote consequences even when you're putting out good. It's just when you put out good, the consequences are good. So, you know, there's there's consequences to everything, good, bad, light or dark. It's just sometimes with the dark, you got to remind yourself, are you willing to pay those those consequences? Exactly. All right. Great question. Okay. So let's see. Uh, I think the last question we have is from Hyacinth93, and they say, how do slash did you incorporate your kids into your witchcraft practice? I took them Lived everywhere. in my house. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> they saw in everything. We had a... Okay, here's a dumb one. And I know this is the dumbest rhyme in the world, but my kids still say it. I still say it. But you know how kids have irrational fears of the dark and the boogeyman and everything. I made up a little spell for them to help them when they were kids. And it goes like this. Earth, air, fire, water. This house is safe. Safe for a witch's daughter. And so they would repeat that four times. Earth, air, fire, water. This house is safe. Safe for a witch's daughter. And it would help them feel safe in their beds. And at this point, it has such the weight of history that it's still a very powerful spell that my eldest, who's very witchy, uses on the regular. So back in the day, back in our, our younger days, my kids grew up having the coven meetings at our house. Exactly. So all, all you guys would come over and, and we would have coven meetings or be getting ready for rituals or sometimes doing rituals in my house and my kids were there. So, I mean, my kids just, you know, I had altars in every room, um, witchy books everywhere. Like, like it was just, it was the everyday for my kids. Full on pregnant belly about to give birth at any second. One of the community artists drew a mandala, beautiful, gorgeous mandala on a tank top that I had over my very pregnant belly as I walked representing the goddess in, I think it was a litha ritual. Um, you know, and, and so, and they've, they've grown up going to community and going to ritual with us. It's something that they very much participated in from birth on up until now. I do have a 16 year old who is kind of an atheist, but she adores ritual. She's an herbalist and she does like witchy things, but not very much into the religion. And then my oldest, who's 19, is a full-on witch. I, I mean, I would like to point out that my my children have a set of grandparents that are very, very Catholic and they are very wonderful people. Love them to death despite divorce. And my kids equally grew up they would go to vacation Bible school over the summer. They were a part of my, my son did stations of the cross for years. So my kids did have an equal balance between their parents and their grandparents of paganism and Christianity. And they both kind of still ride that line as adults. They just believe it all. We did divinations over your pregnant belly and, you know, brought our children in slings to ritual and to spell work. And you know, so they, they have very much been involved in all of it. Remember, the, remember that one time when my daughter was like three and like ripped up a whole bunch of tarot cards? Just like, oh. I was like, what? Ah. I yeah. mean, it's just been, they've always been inundated in it. Yeah. I'd like to share a quick tradition before we get into our spooky stories. But we do celebrate a secular Christmas, mostly because Christmas is such a part of our culture that I wanted to find a way to tie the two traditions together so that we could have a family Christmas 
which was completely secular and non-religious, all about family and giving and that whole idea of peace on earth and, you know, and selflessness. And then also celebrate the winter solstice and the birth of the sun and, and Yule. And so what I decided on was on the night of Yule, we usually have a little ritual and celebration. And then we light the first of four candles. We light a gold candle to represent the sun. And then the next night, we light the gold candle for the sun and a silver candle for the moon. And then the third night, gold sun, silver moon, green for the god. And then on Christmas Eve, we light the fourth candle, which is red for the goddess. And so each night kind of builds, the light is growing to represent that on the solstice, it's the darkest night. And then after that, the days slowly, gradually start to grow as we enter the light half of the year. So having more lights each night helps to represent the growing light. And it bridges that gap between the solstice and Christmas and helps to kind of tie the two together. And my kids still tell me to this day that is one of their favorite holiday traditions. Now, I just want to put it out there. I kind of, you know, my, my kids are used to celebrating both and are aware of both and just putting it out there. Nine Christmas trees at my house. Layla is <laughs> my witness. I have like an ornament addiction. But for all you witches out there, whether you're newbies, baby witches, old witches, sometimes you don't have that kind of time in your life. And it's okay. And don't think it's not okay. Because as a single parent, I didn't do any of that crap. It sounds wonderful and beautiful. And I would have loved to but like, you know, sports and and, and, and theater and, you know, taking kids here, dropping them off there. Like we just it's a lot. It's a lot. And as much as sometimes you can't fit those ritualistic things in, in the holidays, you know, shopping and family visits, but have the conversations, you know, sit down and talk. Even if you don't have time to light the candles, talk about it while you're eating or driving to the next sporting event. Just because you can't do it ritualistically doesn't mean you can't acknowledge it and celebrate it and and, and put energy into it. And there's so much out there now. There are children's winter solstice stories that you can just buy on Amazon or at your local bookstore. You know, you can get a book about my first Yule and read that to your kids. It's a lot different than when our kids were little. Right. We had to make shit up. <laughs> we did. And, 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 you know, and we didn't have, you know, the internet was new. Like when my daughter was born, you were getting AOL discs in the mail and... <laughs> You know, and it was dial right. up and that's what it was when my kids were born. And like nowadays, you know, you've got Amazon and audiobooks and there's resources everywhere for raising pagan There's children. resources. Yep. So that's our first Ask Me Anything. Thank you, everyone who sent in questions. We really appreciate it. And uh, that was kind of fun. And great questions, by the way. Love it. Send more. Yeah, for our next one. I hope you learned a little bit about us. And if you have more questions, send them to the stoned, which is our at gmail.com. We'll answer some more on our Instagram if we get any more questions up. So go ahead and keep sending them in if you got them. But I'm going to pack another bowl, Shell, and I'm going to tell you a super interesting spooky story that I'm not sure if it qualifies as a poltergeist, a ghost, Ooh. a demon, or a cryptid. Ooh. I'm intrigued. It's everything rolled into one. I love it. It kind of is. We are going to go to Hawaii to the neighborhood of Kaimuki, which is in Honolulu 
on the island of Oahu. Can I just say real quick, if we have any listeners in Hawaii, we're thinking of you. I hope you're safe in the volcano eruptions. The pictures are beautiful, but we know that there's some danger. So we're thinking of you. Love you. Yes. No one has gotten hurt in those eruptions right now. I hope it stays that way. Let's see. Mauna Loa is currently erupting on the big island, which is Hawaii, which is sometimes called the big island. So Mauna Loa is the volcano that's currently erupting right now. It has been erupting for several days. I heard it sparked Kilauea to start going too. I believe so, yes. And it's the first time that Mauna Loa has erupted in about 40 years. So Holy kind shit. Of interesting. A lot of Pele activity. The goddess Pele is the volcano goddess of Hawaii. She's called she who shapes the sacred land. She's also called she who devours the land. And so all volcanic activity is related to the goddess Pele. Love Pele. Love Pele. But she can be a... uh, Angry woman. She can be. She can be. But she was also the goddess of creation. And we're talking a little bit about her. And it's very cool that the Mauna Loa is erupting right now because these islands were all formed by volcanic eruptions millions of years ago over lots of time. And it formed this archipelago of multiple islands. And they're all made out of volcanic rock, which is a, it's a, it's a type of basalt. As you know, a lot of times we have ghost stories and paranormal stories that have to do with different types of rock and water where they get together. So Hawaii is kind of a magical land already. And I'd also like to just point out real quick as far as Pele in the magical lava rock, um, there are stories that if you take lava rock from Hawaii, you're cursed. And there's been people who have even mailed it back to the national park system because they felt cursed. Like if you go to Hawaii, leave that shit there. Don't take it home. I I would definitely agree with that. Leave that there. There's that curse that Pele does not appreciate it if you take her lava rock with you. And they actually have a whole department that has to deal with these rocks that come back with story after story of bad luck that happened to people when they took the lava rock from Hawaii. Don't take the rock. And it's said that this is actually was made up by people who worked in the tourism department that wanted to stop people from taking it. I don't believe it. But whether it was made up or real, the stories of these people are really happening and the things that have happened to them are truly freaky. We'll be doing a whole episode on the different stories of things that have happened to people. Ooh. And something that I think happened to me when I found a statue made out of Hawaiian lava rock in a house I moved into. But that's a whole different episode. That's funny because I've never told you this, but I actually have a, a situation where I ended up with it. Um, it came from my parents that got it from Hawaii, and I actually did mail it back. So I can't wait for that episode. That'll be a fun one for sure. But so this this town is called Kaimuki. It's on the island of Oahu, and talks about a lot how this whole community was built on lava rock but i think they all were so i I don't know if this one was necessarily i'm pretty sure that all of hawaii is lava rock this this community called kaimuki was built in the in the early 40s and it was created to be kind of like a middle class introductory houses it's a really nice neighborhood and, and there's lots of family houses there now, Hawaii is made up, it's, it's very much a melting pot. There's a lot of different nationalities there. There's a lot of different cultures there. I'd and, like to be there. Uh, same. And there's a lot of Japanese people that live in the islands. 
And in the 1920s, they reached the height of 43% of the population in Hawaii. So their culture and people very much make up quite a bit of the fabric of the Hawaiian islands. So in the 40s, the population was about a third of the total population of Hawaii. And the reason I'm bringing up the Japanese people is because we're talking about a, an entity that's called Akasha, which is a demon in Japanese folklore. And people believe that one of the houses in this town of Kaimoki is haunted or possessed by Akasha. Ooh. And on August 13th in 1942, officers were called to one of these family houses in Kaimuki by a woman who was absolutely hysterical on the phone. And she kept saying repeatedly, she's trying to kill my children. She's trying to kill my children. When the officers get to the house. That would freak me out a little bit. Right? So they are expecting like a domestic violence situation. But when they get to the house, inside they see a woman and her three children two teenage daughters, and a young son. The woman is using tea leaves, which is spelled T-I, which is a plant in Hawaii. But she's using tea leaves and salt and water and trying to bless the children because they're being thrown about by an invisible force. The police officers can see them being thrown up in the air and fighting against something that's not there. Reminds me of The Exorcist. Very similar to that. There's actually a newspaper article and it says that upon entering the house, the officers could do nothing more than watch in horror as the children are levitated, slapped, strangled, and hurled across the room by an invisible force. They couldn't do anything in the beginning. They could barely even get to the children. And the woman is screaming that someone is attacking her children. Oh, wow. That's freaky. <laughs> yeah. For over an hour, the police officers tried to get to the children. And they were finally able to get the children and the woman outside of the house and tend to the wounds of the kids. The kids had been strangled. They had bruises all over their body. And the... Did the kids have any idea what was attacking them? Interestingly, in the newspaper article, it says that the son, who was 10 years old at the time, had said when they came home from shopping that the house smelled like a ghost. And it was shortly after he made that announcement that he started being thrown around the room by this invisible force. I don't want to be weird or anything, but like, and I know that like, there's been times recently where I said it smelled like snow outside, but like, what does a ghost, like, wh like, what does that mean? I'm not exactly sure. Like, maybe is it he meant balls? It like smelled what? like death or it smelled, maybe he meant it smelled like cold. Like you said, it smells like snow. I don't know. It never says, the article does not say what he meant by that. Just that he says he smelled a ghost and that's when the attack happened. I'm very curious on what snow or, or what, yeah, what snow smells like. What ghosts smell like? I am too, actually. Keep in mind, don't forget the part where the woman was saying, she's trying to kill my children. Keep that in mind for a minute. Oh, I almost forgot about that, actually. So that was in 1942. And then later in 1977, a young couple had moved into the house. Same house? Same house. And everything was fine. They hadn't been there for very long, maybe a month or so. And it was Mother's Day and the family left to go to have a family dinner with the husband's family. So the husband's mother. When they came back that night and went to bed, the wife said she had trouble sleeping. For whatever reason, she was super tired when she went to bed. But as soon as her head hit the pillow, she was wide awake. Something fell off and she couldn't sleep. That sounds like a Tuesday for me. <laughs> she noticed that around 4 a.m. the room was noticeably cold and she could see her breath in the air. 
She decided to get up and go to the bathroom and she shivered the entire way and said that the room was ice cold. Now, this is Hawaii. I don't know if it ever gets ice cold. That's when you wake somebody up because it's weird. Right? She said she got back into bed and the room was so cold she could still see her breath. And that's when she noticed it started to form an oddly large haze at the end of the bed. And then she realized it wasn't her breath. The air was actually crystallizing and getting thicker at the end of the bed. And it gradually formed into the torso and head of a woman with long flowing hair and a wide open mouth like she was screaming, but no sound. And she had no arms and no legs. What would freak me out the most about that situation is that it formed out of my breath, not that it was there. If it just appeared on its own, I'd be like, all right. But because it formed out of my breath, I'd be like, whoa. She says at that time she was unable to move or speak and she desperately wanted to wake up her husband and she couldn't. And she said it felt like forever and she was finally able to make a noise and wake her husband and then it was gone. The room was back to normal temperature. The apparition at the end of the bed was gone. There was nothing. So they went to a priest. That priest said it was a kasha that had attached to the house due to the murders that had been committed there. So this was one of those attached to the property type hauntings. Absolutely attached to the property. Akasha is a Japanese yokai or demon that attaches itself to people who have done bad things in life. And then when they die, it takes their corpse away and, and eats them. Ew. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like a freaking zombie. Right? They also disguise themselves as ordinary house cats. And they're described as when they turn into their to their kasha form, they have the head of a cat and are upright on two legs like a human, but they have big claws. Why do they have to be mean to kitty kitties? Right? I don't know. So this is, I'm not sure if it's a ghost or some type of cryptid or a demon. I'm not exactly sure. It's definitely something weird. It doesn't exactly sound like the traditional description of Akasha as I get into a few more of these stories, but everyone, I guess, is in agreement that it is Akasha. So what this priest told them to do was that they needed to make offerings to the spirit. They should leave out bread and salt water, leave it out as an offering for this spirit. And then at the end of the day, they should bury it in the garden and they should do that every day for a week. Sounds reasonable. Yeah, they did that, and then they report that in the entire time they lived there, they never had another experience. However, in 1996, a young couple saw that the Kaimuki house, the Kasha house, was for sale. And they went on a tour of it, and even though it was kind of in disrepair, they fell in love with it, until the owner at the time told them three stories. The first one is what I think is the origin story of why Akasha attached to the house. And what he said... was that the first family that owned the house was a father, a wife, and two children, a boy and a girl. And it was a a young Japanese family, moved in, loved the neighborhood, everything was fine. Until one night, the police got called to the house. And when they got there, they found that the father had snapped for some unknown reason and had killed his wife, his son, and his daughter. Oh, shit. The house was covered in blood and they discovered the wife and the son buried in the garden in the back of the house. Oh, but they couldn't find the body of the daughter. Oh, it turned out he had eaten her. Oh, my God. His own daughter, his own daughter. All right. This guy has mental health issues. They never found any remains of her. So I don't know if necessarily that's true, but that's what he said happened. And I couldn't find proof of this particular story, but everyone is in agreement that this is why the house is haunted. 
And because it was a Japanese couple and he had committed such an atrocious act, they say maybe the Kasha attached there to take his soul and to take his body and then just never left. Maybe it got trapped because of the lava rock in the water. I don't know. But the second story that this owner told happened shortly after the man had killed his wife and two children. Can I just point something out to you real quick? Sure. They say that um, sometimes it's easier for spiritual activity, uh, paranormal activity near water areas. Lava is very, lava is a very porous rock. Um, so it is conducive to kind of keeping paranormal activity in that space. That makes a lot of sense. It, it follows along with the stone tape theory that we've talked about on this podcast before, right. where some geological formation, something in that area allows traumatic events to kind of be recorded in the very area and replay themselves over and over again. And the way lava is very porous once it hardens is, is one of those geological phenomenons. So the second story that this owner in the late 90s said was that in the early 70s, before the young couple that moved in that, that gave the bread and, and saltwater offering, in the early 70s, a young lesbian couple had moved into the house and that everything was fine with that couple until one of them started having an affair with a man. Oh. The story goes that she broke up with him and then he found out that she had been in a relationship all along and had been living all along with this other person. Oh. And he snapped, went to the house and killed them both before killing himself in the house. What do they expect, to be honest? And then he told them a third story. And this story is another one that was in the newspaper. And what would you say the year was, roughly? It doesn't say. It just says years later. I'm not able to get an exact date on this newspaper clipping. But I have a oh, clipping okay. of a newspaper, so it may or may not be fake, because I haven't been able to get a date for it. But I see it everywhere online. Okay. Basically, this article says a police officer in Kaimuki got a late night call from three girls who were sharing the Kasha house. They had heard some banging and some strange noises and people talking. But when they searched the house, they found nobody there. One of the girls felt a man's hand grab her arm. Yeah. But the three of them were alone in the house. That's when they decided they were going to go to another town and spend the night with one of their mothers. However... They were having trouble leaving the house. The bangings and the noises were increasing to the point where they were scared to leave the house. So they called the police and asked the police to escort them to the mother's house one town over. So what happened is the policeman wrote an actual report that says they got into one car, the three of them in the front seat of one car. He got in his patrol car to follow them. He wrote in his report that the girl in the middle front seat as they drove away all of a sudden started jerking and reaching up as if she was trying to pull someone off of her. What? He said it literally looked like she was trying to fight off someone who was trying to strangle her. Oh my God. The girl driving the car pulled over. He pulled over and jumped out of his car and ran over to their car. The other two girls got out, but the girl that was fighting the unseen entity was like wrestling around in the front seat. He reached in to try and grab her and pull her out of the car. And he says it felt like a large calloused man's hand grabbed his arms and pushed him out of the car. Oh, my God. He said it twisted his arms so hard it left marks. Oh, my God. He went back to his car and radioed for assistance. When they got there, the girl was still fighting in the front seat of the car. 
and he says, quote, there's a ghost in that car. The two friends are hysterical on the side of the road. Oh, shit. So they're hysterical on the side of the road. And now there's a second officer who got there within minutes, and they're trying to get this girl out of the front seat. They pull her onto the, onto the parking lot where they had pulled over, and she seemed okay. So he tried to put her into his car, and she wouldn't go. She started, like, writhing, her back arched. He couldn't get her into the car. But as soon as he would stop trying, she'd be Oh, my God. The three girls decide to go back into the girl's car and have the police officer follow them again. No sooner had they gotten in the car than the passenger door flew open, and the girl who had been being choked before literally looked like she was tossed out the side of the car onto the pavement. Oh, shit. She was grabbing at her throat as if she was trying to pull hands away and choking on the ground. It took both officers to hold her down and to grab her hands away from her throat. They were able to get her stabilized and stop choking, but none of the girls would go back to the house. They absolutely refused. They had to have contractors go in and move all their things out of the house. I don't blame them. I wouldn't go back in. Fuck that shit. So after telling the potential new owners these three stories... They decide to offer him half price for the house. (laughs) (laughs) And to their surprise, he quickly accepted. So the house went from being $500,000 reportedly. They heard these ghost stories and said, okay, it's fucking haunted. Needs a little bathroom work. I'll give you $250. Needs a little bathroom work. Love it. (laughs) He says, done. Let's sign the papers. So they leave, do a little more research, and find there's even more stories. Oh, God. And backed out of the deal, refused to buy the house. I'm not sure what happened after that, but eventually it was torn down, and I believe a small apartment complex was put up in its place. Now, keep in mind, nobody can agree which house exactly is the Kaimu Key house. Probably because no one wants to admit it. There's some stories that could have happened in a different house in Kaimu Key. So even if it wasn't one exact house, that area is haunted as fuck. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's also a, um, you can find an article online, a gentleman from San Diego named Keith Mann, who lived in that house in 2016, or he lived in the apartment house that replaced the Kasha house of Kaimuki. He says he was having a hard time finding housing in Hawaii, and I guess he was living with someone who was kind of scary and (laughs) had a fetish with knives and talked about killing people in his sleep. So he was- Haven't we all? (laughs) You know, it's that, it's that- Really weird, slightly dangerous roommate that you that we all had in our early right. 20s. So right. he was looking for an apartment, any apartment, really fast. And he found this one in Kaimuki, super cheap. And it wasn't until after he moved into it that he found out that it was the Kasha house. People would be like, oh, you live in that house? So when he looked it up and talked about it with his roommates, they all agreed to have a few ground rules. Number one, no Ouija boards. Good rule. By Very good rule. Number two. No Halloween parties of any kind. Uh, taking all the fun out of it. Yeah, but kind of understandable. The veil's thinnest that time of year. You don't want to tempt fate. I get it. And rule number three, no challenging the ghost or tempting fate. Also a very smart rule, which a lot of people don't think about. Also no fun. Right. <laughs> but you don't want someone like, oh, say, Shell. Right. Or, you know, your cousin who doesn't know any better coming in and being like, And I don't mean this if there's anyone around, by the way. Hey, ghosty, come on out and fuck with me. You know, you don't want to be saying that. Man, I feel kind of bad saying it on you. Yeah, right. But you don't want to say that. So I think that was pretty responsible of them. 
He said kind of secretly he was hoping to have like a ghosty thing happen. But other than the, you know, the pretty normal doors opening and closing and things moving around a little bit, they didn't really have anything. You know, that's kind of the equivalent of having like little earthquakes in Los Angeles and yeah. not really a big one. You know, you just little things. They're kind of fun. He does say that there were a couple nights that made him way less of a skeptic. Ooh. He had a few supernatural experiences. Here's how it started. He would wake up every night at exactly 4.33 a.m. Here's your sign. Right? He said his room would be ice cold and his heart would be racing as if he just had a hit of adrenaline. He would barely know where he was and it would be as if his internal alarm was going off and he'd have a gut feeling that something was very, very wrong. The room would be ice cold and he says that shortly after waking up, every single smoke alarm in the apartment would go off at the exact same time, just one beat. He wants to point out that these smoke alarms are not wired to a central unit. They're all just individual stick on the wall, put in a battery smoke alarms. But every night, minutes after waking up at 4.33 a.m., every single one would beep once in unison. There's your sign. He says he has a portable AC. It gets hot. It gets very humid there. Right. He says he has it set at 72 degrees and it cuts off. He doesn't think it's actually possible for it to get any colder. It's just a cheap room unit. But he could see flashing on the AC unit 60 degrees. So he knows what temperature the room was. That's weird because, I mean, not that we've lived in Hawaii, but we've owned air conditioners and they generally don't go that low. And he says it wasn't that the room was cold that was the weird part. It was the ice cold feeling in his chest. He says, and I quote, it felt like being stabbed by a white walker. My veins were filled with ice water, and I thought my life force was being drained out Damn. of me. My chest was tight. I struggled to breathe. No matter what I told myself to calm down, the feeling crept through me like a virus until I could barely move. Wow. So he says whenever he'd wake up, it would feel like someone was staring at him from the darkness, and he would be super freaked out, and he'd have to leave his room. It felt like it was kind of localized to his bedroom. And he says he never saw anything weird. There was never anything physical there, but just this ice cold dread and the room being super cold. But it would just happen for a few nights in a row and then it would stop. He doesn't think that it's Akasha that lives there. He does feel that there's a ghost. Akasha is a Japanese demon and it has that whole cat head and it carries away people who have done wrong. Right. So people call it the Akasha house, but I don't necessarily know except for maybe that first guy that was there that killed his whole family. I don't necessarily know if it's Akasha. That might just be an assumption. Right. And it might be a poltergeist because there is one more story of a terrible thing that occurred in that house. So there's a story that a Samoan woman and her son moved into the house. I don't have a date for this story either, but I heard it told and retold several times, some by traditional Hawaiian lore storytellers. So this Samoan woman and her son moved into the house and he started dating a young woman in town and the mother hated her, could not stand the girlfriend at all and would constantly berate her son about this woman and said that she didn't want any half-caste grandchildren and certainly not with that woman that she couldn't stand. Unfortunately, the mother passed away and as is, I guess, Samoan custom, he buried her in the backyard and put up a headstone, which... I believe is still there at the Kaimuki house. And some people say that that's how you can tell which house it is because the headstone is still there in the back garden. So he buried her in the backyard and time passed and the girlfriend becomes the wife and they have two beautiful children. 
a boy and a girl. And whenever he would leave the house, there'd be poltergeist activity that kept getting worse and worse, but it would be perfectly fine when he came home. And it culminated the night that the police were called and the newspaper article was written about the woman that said that it's all my husband's fault and she's trying to kill my children. So they think that... So it was kind of a poltergeist activity of maybe the mother that had passed away that was buried in the backyard of this house that already had a lot of spiritual paranormal energy. A lot of stuff going on, yeah. And nothing would happen except when the husband was gone. You know, so it's possible that those two stories are related. Interesting. <laughs> so there's another story about the unblessable house. And this is, uh, this is told by Hawaiian master storyteller Lopaka Kapuni. And he says that in 1972, there was a new age kahuna. And kahuna is like a, like a witch, like a spiritual, a spiritual practitioner, somebody who practices like witchcraft. And he had made a name for himself doing house blessings, uh, particularly in the Kaimuki area. And he was kind of a hippie, new age kind of kahuna. He had heard that there was an unblessable house in the Kaimuki neighborhood. Maybe it was the Kasha house. Maybe it wasn't. Uh, Mr. Kapuni does not believe that it was the Kasha house, but it was definitely in the same neighborhood. So it was rumored that no priest, priestess, mage, kahuna, witch, anybody, nobody could bless this house. And as is tradition in Hawaii, people like to bless their houses when they move in. They kind of do that all the time. Good idea. Smart choice. Right. They'll use the tea leaves, salt, water, all of these things that are sacred there to to bless a house. Now, this kahuna took this as a personal challenge and decided he, of course, could totally bless this house. So, So he goes to this location and he's wearing all his ritual clothes and he's got his beautiful painted bowls that match. They're made of this gorgeous sacred red clay. And he's got one of water and, and one of Hawaiian salt. And he's waving the tea leaves and he's throwing the salt and the, the water and he's blessing this house. And he's getting louder and louder and he's using Hawaiian words and curse words. And at the end of it, he's thrown his last fistful of salt that he says he had made himself from a sacred place on the island. And he takes the bowl, the empty bowl of salt, and throws it against the outside of the house and declares, this house is blessed. Kind dramatic. A little bit. Now, the homeowners have been through this before. They've had the house blessed many, many times, and it has never worked. But Kahuna seems very, very confident, so they're willing to give it a chance. They're like, are you sure? He says, I'm sure. They're like, great. Good job, dude. So they go home, and he goes back to his house, goes to bed, a very smug and happy Kahuna. Does this have any tie to the phrase, the big Kahuna? I believe it does, yes. Weird. This Kahuna wakes up at 4 a.m., And he finds that his bed, his blanket, is weighed down and covered entirely with a thick layer of the same type of salt that he had used to bless the house. There's salt all over the floor, his dresser, his nightstand, all the furniture in his bedroom. Oh. In one corner of the room is no salt. It's perfectly clean. And laying in the center of that corner, intact the bowl that he had smashed against the side of the house, and it's filled with salt. Oh, shit. He gets up out of the bed, and that bowl shatters right in front of him. Oh, my God. Rumor has it that the kahuna gave up house blessings entirely after that, and to this day, that house is still unblessable. We should go live there. (laughs) 
So I don't know if it's a Kasha or if it's a demon or if it's a poltergeist, but it sounds like that house or that neighborhood is really, really haunted. So that's my story tonight. What do you think? Uh, makes me want to go to Hawaii. Can I just say that? Oh, that's the reason you want to go to Hawaii? Just that? Well, no, but there's, <laughs> there's a thousand reasons I want to go, but that just adds to the pile. <laughs> now, do you think there could be a Pele connection? Possibly. It's the whole volcanic rock thing, and Pele is part of all of this, and maybe the jealousy thing, maybe Pele could have inflamed some passions, possibly. I, I don't know. I'm not really sure, but maybe. I do feel that the Hawaiian islands are magical. Everything about it, there's there's magic in every nook and cranny, and there's a lot of there's a lot of spirituality that goes into the place. And, and like you said, even into the the lava rock, that there's the whole urban legend about having bad luck attached to it that right. actually does, whether it's an urban legend or a real thing, it actually happens to people. So I don't know. The whole place is just crawling with with magic and you know powerful spirits. It is a, not that the whole earth isn't, but it is a living, breathing, growing, like Hawaii, it ain't like continental America, like, especially with that volcano going right now, the size of that island today and that size, the size of that island in a month could be different. It's ever growing. It's yeah. its own living, breathing thing. Yeah, it's growing right now with the with the eruptions that are happening. These lava formations will create new space and new land. You know, that that's how they were formed in the first place. Very magical, cool place. I want to be a hula dancer. Can I just say that since we're talking about Hawaii? Oh my gosh, what a beautiful tradition. What a beautiful storytelling tradition. So I think that would be pretty cool for you, a storyteller, to practice a storytelling dance. Well, speaking of storytelling, I want to kind of dive into my story real quick yes please i can't wait to hear yours You're, this is the first december episode so give me some good december stuff shell what you got it's about storytelling actually so it's funny you mentioned that you know tis the season you you talked about yule and christmas and how we're kind of proponents of both <laughs> yeah why not i love i love a lot about it commercialism aside it's, it's a beautiful holiday it is. It is. And just as a side note, decorating a Christmas tree, you're practicing witchcraft. There, I said it. <laughs> um, you're bringing a tree in your house. You're practicing paganism, people. I was looking, I was like, oh, you know, the first episode of December. And I, I thought, let me see if I can kind of tie it in somehow to the holiday cheer. I love that. I love that. So I came across something very interesting that I honestly did not know. And I like to think that I know a few things. This I did not know. And I was like fascinated, which is how I ended up having it be what I wanted to talk about today. I was trying to find ghost stories, paranormal activity, uh, uh, supernatural things that were somehow surrounding Christmas, Yule, the holidays. And actually what I came up with, did you know ghost stories were actually a Christmas tradition in Victoria, England. I absolutely did not know that. I would not have put those two things together. I mean, we've all heard of a Christmas carol. I'm gonna get, I, I, and I'll, I'll get to why you would not have put those two things together because that's actually part of what I'm gonna talk about. Awesome. And, yeah, I didn't even know this, and I was like, no shit. But yeah, Christmas Carol. I was like, oh, now I get it. I thought that was the only one. No. 
you know, spooky stories featuring like supernatural ghosty type stuff were all the rage during the darkest times of the year. That is not just Halloween, Samhain, Day of the Dead, whatever you want to call it. You know, put it that way. And that makes sense. I'm, I guess I'm surprised I didn't see that connection before. Right. So, you know, towards the end of each year, you know, fireplaces are lit, hot cocoa, the whole bit. Even here in America, we've made the tradition to kind of revisit favorite classic holiday stuff. Like, who is not totally right now in the mood for National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation? Because I, I love traditions. Totally I am all about traditions this time of year. It's you know, Rudolph, Charlie Brown The Christmas. family touchstones. I right. love those. Hallmark Channel, we're there. So even though ghost stories may seem out of place in present-day America... Um, they were actually once a Christmas staple, and their peak of popularity was during Victorian England. No shit. Victorians were some freaky people. You know, they were like weirdos. They were like SM, like BDSM people. Like they were they were yeah. some nutty people. Basically Wait, BDSM? Wait, did you what? <laughs> back, back to Christmas here. Back to yeah, Christmas. Yeah, different got, podcasts. Different, different podcasts. Basically, they used to have a tradition of storytelling, and it was mostly oral in the beginning, obviously, but they had oral stories about spooky things. Um, and this wasn't just in, you know, England per se, it was in different countries and cultures all over the world. How, how the story goes, it gave people something to do during the long, dark evenings. Because remember, I'm, I'm talking about. They didn't have TikTok. They didn't have electric. Like long yeah. TikTok. <laughs> okay. No YouTube, no TikTok. But because of the long midwinter nights, folks had to stop working early. They spent most of their leisure hours huddled close to the fire at home. And this is how these stories came about. And a lot of them were local. The Industrial Revolution was what kind of put these oral stories to print. And they actually started coming out with like, I think today we'd call it like a magazine, but like think of it as a magazine, a periodical where every December they would actually put out a, a publication of spooky Christmas stories. Oh, like the Penny Dreadfuls. Yeah. Yeah. So even when people moved out of their small villages and into larger cities, they still wanted access to these like supernatural sagas. So, you know, Victorian authors, uh, such as Elizabeth Gaskell, Arthur Conan Doyle, they would cook up all these stories to have them ready for print in time for Christmas. So there'd be like... Like, like the Christmas movie release, like the premiere release for the, the Christmas holiday season. <sighs> like, remember when we were kids, we had the Sears catalog for Christmas toys, the toy catalog? Oh yeah, the toy catalogs would come out and be so much fun to look through. Same concept, except they were stories. Yeah. <laughs> Like the Christmas but, specials, except they were scary. Right. But these were like horror-filled holiday tales. They were like how the family gathered. And it was, it didn't matter if you were rich or poor or if you were, you know, so, socioeconomic status didn't matter. They would do stories about middle-class people. They would do stories about ghosts and people's stately manners. Hmm. Um, so it really... It kind of touched everybody. It wasn't just an upper class or a lower class. So thing. equal opportunity ghost stories? Equal opportunity. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously, as we all know, 1843, 
uh, Charles Dickens. He was on that bandwagon. Uh, he did a Christmas Carol. Now, Americans didn't really get onto this tradition. And the reason they believe that that didn't happen was because when they immigrated um, a lot, first of all, a lot of the early immigrants seemed to be coming more from like Ireland and such. And they kind of tagged those spooky stories to Halloween. So you're saying we could have had a nightmare before Christmas type Christmases all the time. Yeah. We don't. Yeah. That's kind of a bummer. Yeah. I'd kind of like that. <laughs> and also, you know, people came to America for a fresh start and to live a different life. And this was one of the traditions that they kind of left behind when they came here. I know I've seen some people decorate their Christmas tree as a Samhain tree that looks very much like a Halloween tree with the whole Halloween gothic yep. type of decorations. Yep. Now I have an, an excuse to do that. I, I can say I'm doing a Victorian Christmas and I can decorate it as spooky as I want. The only reason the only reason we got a glimpse of it here in America was because at the time, which by the way, going back to some of our October Salem episodes, Hawthorne even wrote some horror Christmas stories. Nathaniel Hawthorne or Judge Hawthorne? Nathaniel. Oh, he's cool, but fuck that judge guy. No, yeah, no, the author one. He cool. uh he had written some Christmas horror stories in this period as well. But the thing with Dickens is he was like already like a super world famous author. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of how Christmas Carol got picked up in America, but that was like the only one. Oh, because so, it was already famous. So like, all right, we'll let you tell your spooky Christmas story, but right. just that one, because we like you. Right. Because we already know who you are and blah, blah, blah. But American, gotcha. American Christmases, the scenes and stories were actually described as syrupy sweet. <laughs> they really and are. they still kind of are it's a marshmallow world in the winter that's all i'm saying Aww. Um, but you know it was hard to put those Vic victorian style christmas ghost stories into that american culture um so it just never yeah, happened. sticky sweet and you know candy canes and gumdrops does not mix with gothic and ghosts except in nightmare before christmas where it seems to blend beautifully in my opinion i may be biased i am wearing my jack skellington socks right now so now, mind. do you remember the beautiful Christmas tune? You know, I kind of love Christmas music. It's weird, and I know, but I do. You know the song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year? Yeah. Do you remember the line in that? Scary ghost stories. I'm not going to sing on our podcast, people. It ain't happening. But There's, there's no line that says scary ghost You Google that right now. You I'm Google that shit right now. All of our listeners and I are going to sit here and wait patiently because it's happening Scary Ghost Stories is a line, and it's the most wonderful time of the year. And no, you're wrong. You are totally wrong. I'm going to prove you're wrong right now. There is no scary fuck. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories and yeah, tales right of there, the glories right there, of right Christmases there. long, long ago. I love being right. Damn it. I love they say it repeatedly. They actually do. It's right in the song. But Holy shit, it's right in the song. You and I have been singing that song since 1970. What? And it yeah, never, but who knows the words? Does anyone it never really know the words? But, but we've heard it our whole lives. And, when and never. We, never. Never. Never thought twice. Until I looked into this and I'm like, oh my God, it really is. Oh my God. How did I not <laughs> get that? 
But yeah, you're just blowing my mind tonight, Shell. I am learning new things left and right. So really, the way they used to celebrate in old Europe is that it was kind of ghosty season all winter. It wasn't just Halloween. Okay, so so Halloween and Samhain are when the veil are the thinnest, yes. But that darkness, that reclusiveness, that conducive to ghosty stories that's that's all winter well we are still in the dark half of the year until the winter solstice we are still in that that go within time and like we discussed in some of the Samhain podcasts the veil doesn't slam shut right it's still thin it gradually thick you know it gradually thins and then it gradually thickens we are still in a time when they're very very close to us right and you know once you think about it it's actually kind of cool. It is a good time for ghost stories. You know, everybody together sitting around. It's like having those campfire stories, but inside. You know what I mean? It's like the inside version of campfire stories. Well, it sounds like there's toasting marshmallows and having hot chocolate and telling ghost stories. So it right. very much is like camping. Right. And it sounds like fun. We're going to touch a minute talking about the past, present, and future. You know, Christmas. Oh, Christmas, yeah. Yeah. But I just wanted to add one little last tidbit. We are in the first week of December, um, as we stated. I just wanted to real quick uh, talk about Krampus. Oh, Krampus. Okay. All now, right. Let's, let's get into it. Let's get into that one. Real quick. And I don't mean to put you on the spot. And, and we did not plan this ahead of time. Um, but what do you know, if anything, about Krampus? Okay. I know there's a film that stars Krampus. I know that he's like a a demon-looking Santa-like figure. Do you know what his purpose is? He's kind of like, you know how, how we say Santa Claus is always watching and, and right. kind of making sure that you're a good kid? Krampus is the one who like scares you if you've been bad. So absolutely. First of all, absolutely you're correct. You know, one kind of standard thought in in wicca and paganism what have you good and bad light and dark yin and yang balance everything has it nothing is strictly one or the other right everything has a balance and for all of the the light and sunshine and presence and and candy corn that is santa claus there has to be a balance and this is where krampus comes in (laughs) so how i want you to look at krampus is Santa is the yang, Krampus is the yang. Oh, okay. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, actually. Krampus actually comes from pre-Christian Alpine traditions around 6th or 7th century. A German thing, Austrian, um, that part of the world. Okay. And actually Krampus has a knight. And that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it real briefly on this episode The Feast of St. Nicholas is celebrated on December 6th. So the preceding evening, the evening of December 5th, that is actually what is deemed Krampus night. Now, I am not going to pretend to give you the German pronunciation. So we're going to stick with the English version of Krampus night. (laughs) So this episode actually will come out on December 7th, which is, I think, two days. Krampus night is December 5th. The night of the fifth. So it's the night of the fifth. So this will come out two days after Krampus night. Now, 
Krampus is described as a wicked, hairy devil that appears on the streets, sometimes accompanying St. Nicholas, sometimes on his own. Um, he visits homes and businesses just as St. Nicholas, Santa Claus would. He's doing exactly what you said. Santa Claus is rewarding St. Nicholas, rewarding the children with candy and gifts for being good. And Krampus is beating and torturing those who were not. That's a, that's a little bit more drastic than a lump of coal. Well, we're being you real. You get a choice. <laughs> Can you choose Krampus or coal? Because I would probably take the coal. Now, in some of the recent movies, they actually portray him as a murderer that he kills you. So, hey, whooping your ass ain't so bad. That's true. Killing me or whooping my ass, I, I'll, I'll take the whooping. Like I said, he's generally kind of in that German, Austria, Bavaria, Croatia, Czech, Hungary, um, that kind of Slovakia, like that part of the world. Now, did but he come to America at all other than the movies or is he more of a, a European kind of thing? Other than the movies, no. Um, he is actually a, a European thing. But in North America, Krampus celebrations are a growing phenomenon. But, you know, I believe it. You know, there's immigrants, people from all over the world coming to America. They're bringing their culture. They're bringing their beliefs. So, you know, that those celebrations are growing, but the core of the belief and the core of the folklore is in kind of middle Europe. There's got to be a better word for it, but I'm calling it middle Europe. Okay. No, that sounds fun. I like that's interesting. But kind of I like do, an evil elf on the shelf kind of thing. You know, right. Just little spies. Krampus is going to kick your ass. But I'm very interested. You know, he's supposed to have like, you know, the devil horns, the hoofed feet and all of that. Yeah, he looks um, really cool. Kind of like a kind of like a, a Satan version of Santa Claus. Right. Like a thing on his back. Like he doesn't even have like a pack on his back or something. I think so. Yeah. He's supposed to like have a switch. Like he basically beats you with a switch. Oh, great. Him and my grandma must have had a, a shared notebook. <laughs> so basically, you know, I, I think the best description I could come up with is the yin and yang um, with St. Nicholas, because, you know, obviously back in those days, it wasn't Santa, it was St. Nicholas, but, but Krampus is a thing and the festival is coming up. So be good because, you know, on the night of the fifth, you don't want to be getting your butt whooped. Right. Exactly. But, you know, we do have some listeners in Poland, so I would, if you're out there, our Polish friends, first of all, hey. Second mm -hmm. of all, what are your Krampus celebrations? What do you do to honor Krampus? Because I'd like to know. I'm super curious. That is an interesting tradition. You know, you're, there's getting a lot of media, a lot of movies, a lot of TV shows. So it is ramping up, at least here in America. So I, I'd like to know, if you celebrate Krampus, tell me about it. I'm nosy. And as with everything, of course, we have to take a tradition and turn it into a murderer. So Krampus, instead of just punishing bad people before the holiday, is a murderer. Is that true? Or like, is he more of a, you know, I'm here to kind of scare you straight kind of figure? Like, like which is it? Is, is he really, really evil? I mean, because I can accept that. There's a lot of creatures in folklore that are. Or is he kind of just... I'm here to get you on the straight and narrow path. The way, the, from what I read and from what I researched, it would be like, the only way I can equate it, um, remember my mean grandma? Yes. It'd be like my mean grandma. I gotcha. Mean to you because they love you and want you to do right, but they right. kind so of this show is more, it in a hard way. Yeah, this is more of a scared straight. And, you know, do you want to get an ass whooping or do you want to get a gift? 
Because those are your options. Right. Because if you go with Krampus, you're getting an ass whooping. And if you go with St. Nicholas, you're getting a gift. Makes it very easy for a child to understand. I mean, like you said, Krampus is looking, Santa's looking, everybody's looking. Be good, kids. Exactly. There you go. And hey, these elves on the shelves are everywhere. (laughs) I don't know how I feel about elf on a shelf. They didn't have that when I had my kids. In the spirit of Christmas, our next three episodes are going to be Ghosts of Christmas Past for December 14th, Ghosts of Christmas Present for December 21st, which is the Winter Solstice. That will also be our Winter Solstice episode. And then Ghosts of Christmas Future for December 28th. So we'll have each episode kind of be themed around that. And again, the 21st will be a double episode, mostly focused on Yule and the winter solstice. And then I'd like to point something out. Come January, we will have hit one year with our podcast. One year, people. Thank you to everybody who has made that happen. What a kick-ass year it's been, Shell. So many fun things. We've had so much fun. Including the excuse to have a trip all the way to Massachusetts to see you, which I cannot wait to do again, or have you come to California. We we definitely need to get together in person more because we had a blast. Hey, it's going to be my birthday month in just like less than two months. Ah! Right? Ah! So I think for my birthday month, you should come out to California. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Come Let me stay see with me. see if I can me. make that happen. Thank you all so much for joining us on episode 46 of the Stone Witches Hour. We will see you next week for episode 47, our first in our series of three winter solstice slash Christmas episodes, The Ghost of Christmas Past. But we'll still be smoking, don't worry. Oh, hell yeah. I think I smoke even a little bit more this time of year because there's so much going on. I love all the holidays this year. There's so many holidays that celebrate light and togetherness and family. It's It's such a cool time of year. And again, if you have any questions, if there's anything you're nosy-rosy about and want to know, email us, ask us, because you know what? Screw it. We'll answer. We got no shame in our game. Thank you all for being on this crazy ride with us. We've had a blast this year and we'll continue to do so. 2023 is going to be even more amazing for the Stone Witches Hour. So... Thank you again for tuning in and we will see you next week at 4.20 a.m. See you next week. Stay high, stay happy.